welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series five and episode six. This is entitled Jesus Rejected by the Religious Leaders. We're going to be in Matthew's Gospel for this study and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 22 to 37, which we'll read in sections as we go through this episode. As stated in recent episodes, the context is important. We're now in the second tour of Galilee that Jesus is carrying out with his uh, 12 apostles and other disciples following with him. In between the first and the second tours uh, was the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied in its entirety in series four, which is basically giving the ethical and religious framework for the discipleship community. And series three described his first tour of Galilee, the beginning of his ministry, where he experienced great success and popularity, large crowds following him. So in series five, the gospel writers continue the story, telling uh, some remarkable miracles and events that happened, and also highlighting something which is very significant for today's episode, and that is the growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. What happens in today's episode is a critical and defining moment in that conflict. Some very remarkable things are said about Jesus. He has a confrontation with the Pharisees. They make an astonishing accusation against him. And in this episode, we have Jesus on the one hand, the Pharisees on the other, and the crowds caught between them, as it were, in working out and assessing the identity of Jesus. The question at stake is concerning his messiahship, his uh, uniqueness as the Son of God and the Saviour of Israel, the one who fulfilled the Old Testament promises, and particularly the covenant with David. So there's a whole number of things involved in this episode. It is uh, one of the most important and defining uh, episodes of our whole study because what happens in this episode today will cast a shadow across the rest of the story of Jesus right the way through until his death and resurrection. We're going to read this account in sections and uh, we're going to start by looking at Matthew 12 at verses 22 and 23 uh, which is the the opening circumstance. Then they brought him a demon-possessed or demonized man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Well, we have to think about this a little bit to understand the significance of what's going on here. Obviously, Jesus has performed a remarkable miracle and the healing of the blind and the mute was considered very significant. The healing of the blind, the Jews understood to be a particularly significant miracle. So in order to understand the context uh, of this, it's probably worth just referring briefly to the fact that this is referred to in the Old Testament in a context that points towards the Messiah. 
Uh, I've mentioned this before and, and I'll probably mention it again in a later episode, but it's always good just to keep the context in mind. So in Isaiah 35, we have a whole chapter, which is a prophecy about what we could call the messianic age, the age of the Messiah, when the Messiah comes and redeems Israel and brings his power to bear on the nation and brings salvation and overturns all the problems that the people have experienced. That's the sort of context of Isaiah 35. And in that context, we read in verse 5 the following statement, Then will the eyes of the blind be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And continuing, Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And then moving on to verse 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called a way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting Joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, the particular point about this passage that I'm bringing about is the reference to these miracles, the mute, the lame, the blind being healed. And they're being healed in the context here of a messianic event, of God breaking in and his Messiah coming and performing these miracles. That's how most Jews would have understood that scripture at that particular time, which explains to us, to some extent, the comment of the crowd, which is the absolute key to this passage, easily overlooked. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now, what's the significance of this expression, the son of David? Well, we touched on it earlier on and we'll come back to it again. It appears in a number of occasions in the Gospels. But what we have to remember when we see expressions like this is the context of the Old Testament and God's covenant promises. David, the king that God chose to rule over Israel in the days when he established his monarchy, was promised remarkably and uniquely that his kingship, his monarchy, would not be a one-generation wonder, not even him and his son Solomon, but would have a permanent nature. There would be a permanent monarchy or a permanent dynasty of descendants of David who would rule the people of Israel on behalf of God and bring in the kingdom of God. This is stated clearly in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God makes a prophetic promise to David through the prophet Nathan. We'll just look at verse 16, which is the key for us. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this is uh, confirmed in the Psalms. And in Psalm 89, we have um, a wonderful affirmation of this, which I'll just read quickly as well. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm 
through all generations. Now, these are the foundational promises that the Jews believed in. And they believed that the redemption of the nation is going to come through a descendant of David. Now, the prophets pointed towards this. And I'll just give you a couple of uh, well-known examples uh, just to indicate the significance of this. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says of um, a child who is to be born, verse 6, that of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, that's a very clear messianic promise that uh, is linked specifically to a descendant of David. Likewise, in Isaiah 11, verse 1, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Jesse is the father of David, and therefore the name Jesse symbolizes David's family. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. This was understood as a messianic promise too. Now, the kingdom of, of Israel, led by descendants of David, uh, continued for several hundred years after David, but was that monarchy was abolished by the Babylonians in 587 BC when they captured Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and exiled the nation and overthrew the monarchy permanently. So for nearly 600 years, the Jews had not experienced a king of Davidic descent ruling over the country. In fact, for most of that time, the country had been ruled by foreign powers, Persia, various Greek kingdoms, and now at this particular time, the Romans. So there was an aspiration amongst the Jewish people that God's salvation would come about through a biological descendant of David, a man who would be a king in Israel in some form or another. And so when they use the term son of David, it's a messianic term concerning the fulfillment of this covenant promise from 2 Samuel 7.16 and affirmed in Psalm 89 and elsewhere, which speaks about a Davidic descendant. Now, what we know about Jesus is that biologically, uh, through Mary, through his genealogy, as we discussed earlier on, he's descended from David and his adopted stepfather, Joseph, is also a descendant of David. So the significance of this was basically the crowd saying, could this be the Messiah? And this provokes the dramatic counterstatement of the Pharisees. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. This is an incredible statement. And it's repeated later on in Luke 11. We have another example of a similar confrontation, but in a different time and a different geographical location. So the Pharisees present are basically saying that Jesus is a false messiah. He's operating through evil demonic power, Beelzebub being a name for the senior evil spirit or demon understood by the Jews, Satan himself. So the Pharisees are saying the power he's using is evil power, not the power of God, because he's a false messiah, not a true messiah. 
This conclusion is a culmination of a critique of Jesus that the Pharisees have been conducting for some time. They've been on his tail. They've been observing him. They've been questioning him. They've been debating with him. They've been critical of him. They have argued that he's broken the law of the Sabbath, that he's inauthentic in his claims, that he doesn't have the power to forgive sins. And we saw in a recent episode, for example, when Jesus entered the house of Simon the Pharisee and a prostitute came and uh, anointed his feet, uh, that Jesus pronounced forgiveness and the Pharisees and others present were hostile and critical and questioning him. They didn't believe he had the power to forgive sins because they didn't believe he was the son of God and the Messiah. They believed he was just an ordinary human. So this conflict has been going on for a long time. And what's actually happened is that this opinion here isn't the opinion of just a few people who are present. These Pharisees are part of a national network, several thousand Pharisees, always in communication with each other, all connected to the city of Jerusalem and all connected to the religious establishment and the senior religious court, which adjudicated or made decisions about religious matters known as the Sanhedrin, which we've mentioned before, we'll mention it again. There were some Pharisees on the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin had the responsibility for investigating any claims that someone was the Messiah. They would investigate by sending people to observe and then sending people to question then bringing back reports and then adjudicating their answer. They'll ultimately do this when Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin under the leadership of the high priest at the end of his life. But these Pharisees are delivering the opinion of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisee movement that Jesus is a false messiah. This provokes Jesus to speak very firmly into this situation. Let's read verses 25 to 29. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself, but then how can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, They will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house? Jesus is pointing out that any kingdom divided against itself will fall And what motive would Satan have for allowing his house to be divided of one evil spirit driving out another spirit? Jesus says it doesn't make any sense to consider that this miraculous action of this demonized man who is healed of blindness and being mute, it doesn't make any sense to attribute this to Jesus operating out of evil power because why would he perform a good miracle and undo the work that evil has done in that man it doesn't make any sense and so Jesus uh, refutes their argument and their statement very clearly 
and basically says in verse 29 that he is the person who is uh, going to take hold of the captives of Satan, going to break into his house and release people through his power. And he continues, verse 30 to 32, with some very sobering words. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. These are challenging and for some people very perplexing words. What did Jesus actually mean? So it's the activity of the Holy Spirit that is under question here. A man has been healed of blindness and being mute, who is described as having an evil spirit operating within him, causing those infirmities. The Pharisees say Jesus used a more powerful evil spirit to get rid of the lesser evil spirit to produce the results of healing. Jesus says to the contrary, if I by the spirit of God drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's basically saying, the activity you've seen before your eyes when this one man was healed, and many similar circumstances, of course, but this particular one man, this activity is the activity of the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God overturning evil and bringing in God's kingdom and is a sign of the Messiah because it fulfills the words of uh, prophecies like Isaiah 35, verse 5, which was a well-known verse in a well-known prophecy. And so Jesus warns here that if you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to evil forces, you are entering into very, very dangerous territory. It's even worse than speaking negative words about Jesus. It's attributing to the devil the work that the Spirit does. It's a serious insult or a slander. But what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking directly to the Pharisees. So let's put this verse very firmly in its context so that we don't misunderstand it. Some people have been very afraid that they've committed the unforgivable sin. But for those who do that, they have such a set attitude that they wouldn't have that fear. So let's try and work out through the context exactly what Jesus means. He's talking to these Pharisees. He's talking to them about their statement and saying, once you make that statement, there's no way back. They've adopted a fixed attitude, not a casual comment, a fixed attitude of attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to demonic power, having clearly seen the evidence of God's power through Jesus' ministry. They've seen with their own eyes what Jesus has done and they have formally said it's the work of evil, not the work of the Holy Spirit. So the only people who can carry out this unforgivable sin are those who have very clear and decisive revelation. They've seen with their own eyes the work of God, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, 
and having investigated it closely and investigated the message of Jesus, have formally, decidedly, permanently said, no, we're against that. This is the work of evil. Now, very few people ever do that. Most people dismiss Jesus because they don't understand him. They speak words against him. They slander him. They minimize him. They say that the events in the, in the Bible didn't happen. They say he's not really the son of God. He didn't perform miracles or, or whatever. All those things can be forgiven. But once you've seen the whole picture, as the Pharisees had done, and then you maliciously attribute the work of the Spirit to the work of demons, then Jesus warns that you won't get a second chance. We finish this passage by reading the final verses, verses 33 to 37. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken, for by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus here pointing out that what we say ultimately indicates what we believe. And so our words reflect our heart and our heart attitudes and God judges the heart. And one of the ways he can do that is through the things that we have said. This is a very sobering teaching to end a very sobering passage. I'm sure you'll agree. This is remarkable confrontation that takes place here. So I want to spend a few minutes just now carefully reflecting on what we've looked at to try and make sure we've understood it uh, as accurately as we can and applied it as appropriately as we can. First of all, just to remind you what I said at the beginning, this is actually a turning point in the life of Jesus. And if you're analysing the whole story of Jesus and studying it as we're doing in this teaching, then we need to take note of this turning point because, as I said earlier on, it casts a shadow over the future. And the, the Pharisees have declared formally and publicly to Jesus their position and we can assume the position of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling authority in Jerusalem. And that's quite serious because they are now guiding the nation not to believe in Jesus. The Pharisees, of whom there were uh, maybe six or eight thousand in Israel at the time, according to other sources, were very influential. They were all over the country. People came to them and experienced their teaching. They tried to follow their way of life. They respected their religious actions. And if this group is now opposing Jesus, that's a very, very powerful force, which is stopping people believe. Now, it wasn't just the Pharisees, because we know that the Sanhedrin, which involved the priests in Jerusalem and other religious groups like the Sadducees, which we'll study more about later on, these groups were taking a similar position. So this is a turning point. And 
it leads ultimately to the final confrontation between Jesus um, and the Sanhedrin and the religious authorities in the final week of his life when they hunt him out, arrest him, and they bring him to trial in their religious court. And their charge against him is that he's been a blasphemer because he's a claimed messianic status. So it's all part of the same story. And this conflict grows as the rest of the story continues. The second thing that I want to do by way of re reflection is just to um, go back for a moment to our consideration of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or speaking against the Holy Spirit. This genuinely does trouble people. And so it's worthy of us giving some consideration. There are two contexts in the New Testament where this issue comes to light. This is the first one. And the second one is in the book of Hebrews, where a similar warning is made to people in a similar situation. So I'm going to end this talk by just briefly referring to the context of the book of Hebrews, comparing it with the one we've just looked at, and drawing our final conclusion very, very clearly. The book of Hebrews was written by an anonymous author to Jewish people, hence the title Hebrews. Jewish people who had uh, moved from Judaism to Christianity. They'd adopted the Christian faith, they'd moved on from the law of Moses. And the writer explains the difference between the two and focuses a lot on faith in Jesus and the nature of the new covenant that he had brought by his blood, by his death on the cross. The fact it was a permanent new covenant, a new way of relating to God, which made the Mosaic covenant obsolete and no longer required. That was the basic issue in the book. But the writer also addresses some Jewish people who had been very interested in the faith, who'd heard the gospel uh, explained and preached, and also who had experienced some of the miracles that happened in the early church. Miracles like the miracles we've described in Jesus's life and like the miracle that was the trigger for this event, the healing of the blind and mute man. And the writer goes on and warns people that if they hear the gospel, experience the kingdom of God, sense the work of the Holy Spirit, see miracles, they know the whole picture, not just a bit, but the whole picture of what the gospel is. And then if they then choose with absolute determination to refuse that message and to claim that it's an evil message and go back to their Jewish faith, then they have uh, experienced their last chance and they're not going to get another chance. This is described very vividly in Hebrews 6, verse 4 to verse 8. It's impossible for those who've once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss. They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receive the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burnt. This passage has caused a lot of comments and discussion, different views amongst Christians, rather like the passage I've just been looking at in Matthew 12. But what I want to propose to you very clearly is that this is talking about uh, exactly the same type of situation. These people who tasted the goodness of the word of God, shared in the experience of the Holy Spirit, fallen away. They're crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace by basically accusing him of being a false messiah. And they are falling into the category of those who have experienced their last chance because they had the whole experience of what it is to be saved uh, or might be to be saved and all the power of God associated with it. They'd seen that operating in other people and then they'd chosen at the last minute to turn away from it. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They'd seen everything. They'd been around with Jesus. They'd seen miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching. They'd seen his grace extended to people. And at this point, Matthew 12, verse 24, they said, it's by Beelzebub, Satan, that he is exercising his power. So therefore, every sin that we commit can be forgiven. Even sins of insulting Jesus, misunderstanding him, rejecting him. But those who've seen everything, of the gospel. They've had a full experience of its power and then claim that there is demonic power at work or something equivalent are putting themselves beyond the opportunity of having another chance. They've had their chance. But if you're still investigating, you're still finding out and maybe you've had wrong ideas about Jesus and express those very clearly, they can and will be forgiven if we come in repentance to him. This is a profound episode with many important themes in it. And what happens here will shape to a great extent the story that is to follow in subsequent episodes. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.